Well, this morning we're going to study through Isaiah, and we're entering a new uh, type of literature. We've looked at the historical books, the the Pentateuch, first of all, the first five books in the historical books, and then we looked at some poetry, went back to the historical books, and now we're going to look at uh, some prophetic literature. Um, last week we saw the fall of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Do you remember what we we often see those called in Scripture? The northern kingdom is what? Israel. And the southern kingdom is Judah or Jerusalem, right? Because Jerusalem is the capital there. And northern kingdom is also referred to as Samaria and uh, and Ephraim. So those two... Those two kingdoms now have been exiled. They have they have gone into exile. At the end of Second Kings, we saw that, and we saw that the line was 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 very thin as far as the Davidic line, the the line of David, where there's supposed to be this king that continues on forever. It's it's uh, seems to be wasting away, and it seems as if God's not really concerned about His promise. But but uh, Isaiah is a book that will help us see that that God is concerned about His promise and that He is continuing to do what He planned to do. So, with regard to context of this book, um, Isaiah obviously is the author and he wrote the book around the end of the 8th century B.C. And uh, so he comes onto the scene in the middle of the story of First and Second Kings and actually he's recorded in the book of, of Kings as one of these prophets we said was were the covenant watchdogs. They were the ones who would watch over the Scriptures to make sure that the kings were obeying them. And so Isaiah was one of these men. And um, at this point in history, when Isaiah is writing, Israel has not only been exiled, but they've actually slipped further and further into idolatry. They've actually uh, spent many years following false gods. And so Isaiah really is at a time that is critical in Israel's history because because Israel as a people, okay, the Jewish people as a whole, they're they're scattered. They're away from the land that God had promised. They're they're not obeying the law that God had given to them, and as a result, they're missing out on the covenant blessings that could have been theirs. And um the purpose of this book really is is more than simply pointing out their sin, which we'll see that 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 Isaiah is saying, "Listen, you have strayed from God. You need to return to God, because there is no one like God." But really, this book has a lot more to do with who God is, that that God is true to His promise, and we ought to to see Him for that. Um, the book is especially towards the end has the 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 view or has the setting of a kind of a courtroom setting. And God really uh, is the judge and, and is in many ways is the prosecutors. And He's calling the covenant people on trial to give an account for their a- actions and to establish truth. So, so if, you, if what you're doing is right, then, then prove it to me. And so Isaiah acts much like, like the lawyer here and he's executing... Uh, God's case. He's basically standing up on behalf of God and saying, this is what is right. This is what is wrong. Uh, Israel, you are in the wrong and you need to respect and, and see God for who He is. And um, 
the the jury really turns out to be the whole earth. That God is is right in front of the whole earth. That that they could all come as witnesses and show that God is true. And and um, and so here's the theme of the book. We really could state it in a few simple words, and that is God is the only God. God is the only God. We we know this for four reasons that come become clear in the book of Isaiah. First of all, He alone is holy. Secondly, He alone is high and lifted up or majestic. Thirdly, He alone controls history. And fourthly, He alone can save. So God is the only God. There is no one like Him. The He's holy in the sense that... Uh, that he is separate from all of his creation. We'll see this when we when we look at uh, chapter six. Um, he's majestic in that the, the idols cannot compare to him. The, they're not nearly as spectacular or or great as God is. He alone controls history, whereas the idols and the great kings of the nations can do nothing to save themselves or others. And then he alone can save. And um, obviously, the idols cannot do that. Well, there's a lot of text that we could look at to help show these themes coming through, but but really, I think it, it's best encapsulated these themes in chapter 6. So let's turn there to Isaiah chapter 6. In this chapter, Isaiah has a vision of the Lord seating, uh, seated on a heavenly throne, on His heavenly throne, and... Um, and he sees God in His amazing holiness. Now, the first five chapters are really a contrast to what we're about to look at because the first five chapters, Isaiah had been bringing out their sin, that you are an evil people. This is the things that you've been doing against God. And now, chapter 6, we have this amazing vision of God, of who He is in, in all of His holiness, and Isaiah is able to to see them. So that's kind of the backdrop of what we're looking at. So, what I'd like to do is read the entire chapter and then we'll go back verse by verse and, and um, see how these themes come through. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. 
Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. The vision that Isaiah has here influences and shapes the rest of his prophetic ministry. And so it's not surprising that most of the themes are found here in chapter 6. So let's take a look. Look at verse 1 again. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of His robe, filling the temple. How does Isaiah describe how he saw God in this vision? How does he see God? What are the words that he describes Him with? Okay, majestic, which... What are the words there in the text? That's that's a good summary. Oh, okay. What does yours say? Majestic and what? Okay. I saw the Lord's... Okay, there you go. High and lifted up. Okay, so high and lifted up. And in our text, the New American Standard says lofty and exalted. I think those are both good translations. And they both do uh, mean majestic. It means that He is glorious. That He is lifted up has the idea that He conveys this transcendence, this, this aboveness, that, that He is apart from and above all of His creation. He is nothing like us in that sense. That there is no one like God. That He is in a class all by Himself. We can't compare ourselves to God in that light. We can't say that with regard to holiness, we're, we're right here and God's here. It's not even a comparison because He's, he's uh, so high and lifted up. Secondly, in verse 1, his, uh, in His loftiness, He is seated on a throne and He's wearing a robe. So, what, what kind of image do we have here of God? That He's a king. Exactly. So, He's a, he's a king of the entire universe. He's high and lifted up above His universe and He is the king over all the universe. In verse 3, how far does His glory extend? The whole earth, right? One called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. See, He's not like King Uzziah who in verse 1 just died. Uzziah was a sinning king over one small nation, but God is an eternal king who never sleeps and who will never die and He reigns over every atom of creation. He's got the whole thing under His control. And the fact that God's glory fills the whole earth means that there's really no room for other gods. God will accept no rivals. He, he will not share His glory with another. Oh, well, they're, they're kind of comparable to me, so I'll let them have some of my glory. No, not our God. He will not share His glory with another. And so he insists that there are no other gods. And uh, we'll see this theme come up throughout the rest of the book. Look again at verse 3. And one called out to another. These are these angels in verse 2 that it's talking about. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full 
of His glory. There's only two times in Scripture where holy, holy, holy is stated, where the word holy is repeated three times. Here in Isaiah 6 and the other places in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. And it's actually quoting this verse here. And so basically the only time that this repeated phrase, this thrice holy God is repeated, is referring to God. Nothing else can compare to His holiness. This is His one um, overarching attribute. The one attribute I think that that um, that really influences all the other af- attributes. Okay, we don't see here that love, love, love is the Lord of Hosts. Okay, God is a loving God, but but His love is actually governed by His holiness. Okay, or faithful, faithful, faithful. We don't see that. We don't see uh, all of His other attributes here. We see holiness as His primary, fundamental, moral attribute. And His holiness really governs all the other ones so that His love is a holy love. It's, it's based on justice. His mercy is a holy mercy. Um, there's, no, uh, there's no sloppy kind of love where He just kind of accepts whoever. There still is a righteousness, a holiness that is demanded. And so to be holy, we talked about this when we looked at Leviticus, is to be utterly distinct. It's, it's similar to this idea of being high and lifted up. It's, it's that he is, he is apart. It's, the, the word literally means to be apart. It, it's to be apart from his creation. Okay, so when we're called to be holy, we're also called to be apart from the world. There, we're, there's supposed to be a distinction between us and the world. And um, so it includes certainly a distinction there, but it also includes His ethical purity and His perfect uprightness. That God has no moral imbalance within Him. There's no place in God where He is unrighteous. Everything that He does is holy and right. So, Isaiah, for the rest of the book, will compare everyone else to God in His holiness. People are sinners. The kings of the earth are corrupt, but not God. God is holy. In fact, many times Isaiah calls Him the Holy One of Israel. And uh, it's an explicit name that's given directly to God. Look now at verse 5. Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts. Notice the sinfulness of the people. Even God's own people. How are they described? People of unclean lips. There are people of unclean lips because, because God's holiness actually causes a problem with their sin. You see, if our sin were not compared ever to anything else except for other people's sin, then there wouldn't be a whole lot of... Uh, there, there wouldn't be a whole lot of um, consternation within us when we look at other people because, hey, they're all sinners too. But when we compare ourselves to God and His holiness, then our sin looks like how Isaiah describes it. He immediately recognizes in the presence of God, God's holiness not all the things that He's done right. See, I've done all these things for you, God. He didn't recognize all those things. He immediately recognized his own sinfulness and the sinfulness of his people. 
and he he felt unworthy to be in God's presence, which always should happen whenever we come into the presence of God. Whenever we come into a place where we recognize God's holiness for what it is, it should always cause us to, to go down to our knees spiritually. That we, we stand before God or we, we bow before God in shame because of our unholiness, our unworthiness, our wickedness. And even so, God is full of grace. He allows Isaiah to stand there before him. He forgives Isaiah's sins and sets him apart. That's why this angel comes and, and puts this burning coal on his tongue to, say, to signify the idea that, that your sins have been taken care of. Okay? You, can, you can stand before me and, be, um, and still be accepted before God. Not on the basis of anything that he had done, certainly. Well, in verses 9-12, through 12, there's a lot we could talk about. Um, it, this is a passage that's quoted by Jesus Christ when He's talking about parables. He says, you know, the reason that I speak in parables is so that you can understand what I'm talking about. But I'm also trying to hide what I'm saying from, from people who will be condemned. In other words, if they understood everything that I was saying about them, about sin, about God... Then, and they still rejected it, which he already knew they were going to, then what's going to happen is that they're going to be, receive greater condemnation. So, so even God, Christ, unveiling the parables, actually is doing it with, in an act of mercy. It is that, and that's what verses 9-11 through 11 talk about, that they have eyes, but they can't perceive or they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. So they're hearing these parables, but they don't understand them. And um, and if they had understood them, then they would turn and be healed. That's the idea of verses nine through eleven, um, nine through twelve. Excuse me. But but we're, really, we need to focus on verse thirteen. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its. After the exile, which is described in verses 11 and 12, there would be a return. And what Isaiah is saying here in verse 13 is that the, though the nation would be cut down, okay, like a tree being cut down, the stump would still be there. And there would still be a remnant of, of, of life there. What theme have you seen before in verse 13? towards the end of the verse. What, what sort of theme have we seen before that God is, is working to, um, to use within these people? Do you see it? What was it? Right, the Holy Seed. Okay, remember Genesis 3.15? That the seed of the woman, that is one of, the, the woman, one of Eve's children, would crush the seed of the serpent. And, and basically from that time on, you would have people uh, separated into one of these two groups. Either they would be a seed of the woman or they'd be the seed of the serpent. Okay, we're all born as... Um, we're, we're all born under, under really Satan's dominion. That is, that we are slaves to sin. And so we need to be really pulled out of that to become a, a daughter or son or daughter of Eve. 
And um, and the seed that, that is referred to here pops up again here in Isaiah chapter 6. And the point here is that God has not forgotten His promise. Okay, although the line of, of kings seems to be coming to an end, um, God has not forgotten His promise. And so, the vision of the Lord placed alongside the sinfulness of people really ends in grace. Okay, so it begins with chapters 1 through 5 with the sinfulness of the people. Then Isaiah stands before the Lord in beautiful holiness. He recognizes his own sin, and it all ends in verse 13 with grace. God says, I haven't forgot my promise. Okay, I'm still going to, to follow through on it. And, uh, and as long as these people repent, I will, I will do it. If they don't, they're, they're going to have to wait for a future generation. All right, any questions on chapter 6, what we talked about so far? Okay, the next section of Isaiah, um, chapter 7 through 12, is all about how the grace in 6.13 will be accomplished. Okay, so we saw 6.13 that he remembered the seed, this holy seed, and, and that it's the remnant of what God is going to do. Look at chapter 7, verses... 13 and 14. We'll see how this seed is going to continue. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. Verse 13, listen now, O house of David. What, what is that referring to, the house of David? Okay, yeah, right, the kingly line. Okay, if we want to speak specifically of the, the continuing seed that goes on, this is, the, this is the people of Judah, or specifically the kings that were over Judah, that were part of David's line. It began in 2 Samuel 7 with this covenant that God had. And he said that David. Remember, David asked. He said, "He said to God, God, I want to build a house for you, where you can come and dwell." And, and God said, "Actually, David, you're not going to build that house. Your son will build that house for me. But, but actually, what I want to do is I want to build a house for you, David." And what he's talking about is this line that would continue all the way until um, we have a king that would last forever. Well, in the context context of what we're looking at, there's two armies coming up to Jerusalem to attack. And so, the house of David really is in trouble. Look at verse 6. Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabael as king in the midst of it. Okay, these are, the, these are Israel's enemies speaking. And their plan is to remove David's line and replace David with another. So to assure the king of Judah that his line will not be broken, um, God gives this sign in verse 14. What is that sign? A virgin will conceive and bear a son. And, um, and so the house of David will be safe again. Now, some argue that 714 has two fulfillments. That it has a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Okay, and I think we need to understand what, what the argument there is before we can come to the conclusion of what 
is an accurate way of looking at this. Look at chapter 8, verse 3, because this is how they say that this is what they say the near fulfillment is. Obviously, we all understand and know what the far fulfillment would be, and um, and that would be in Christ. That Mary would be this virgin; she would bear the Christ, the one whose name would be Emmanuel, God with us. But here's what they say is the near fulfillment. Chapter 8, verse 3. So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Maher Shalel Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry out, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Now, the people who suggest that there is both a near and a far fulfillment do this because they they think that Judah needs some sort of down payment for God's promise. And so the way that they look at it is really like two mountains. Okay, so so they are here. Okay, and and their view is like this. Okay, they think that the the fulfillment's actually made here. This is the near one. This is where this prophetess gives birth to a son. And the far fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment, comes in this second mountain, Jesus Christ. See, they didn't understand this at the time is what they would argue. Now, these people who, who argue this are actually uh, Bible-believing people. They would, they would certainly be Christians. Um, so, so I'm not saying that these people are false teachers or anything like that. I think they have a misunderstanding of, of how to read a text. And the reason I say that is because uh, what does verse 14 say, or, or who does verse 14 say will give birth to a child? A virgin, right? Now, they, they'll try to argue that away and say that there's actually more than one meaning to that, that that, that could actually mean just a woman or a young lady. And um, we don't have time to get into that argument. But, but basically, I would suggest to you that that really means virgin. Okay? And that's why... Matthew chapter 1. Can someone turn there and read that for us just to, so we can see this? Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Gail, you got that for us? All right, thank you. Matthew 1, 22 and 23. Yep. All right, so so that's a direct fulfillment of what we just saw. Okay, it's not an allusion to. Okay, here's an illustration of what Isaiah talked about. This is a direct fulfillment of what Isaiah said. There will be a virgin, and she will give birth to a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. Matthew says it was fulfilled in Mary when she gave birth to Jesus. His name would be called God with us, Emmanuel. Now, if you look back at Isaiah chapter 8, notice what type of woman gives birth to a son. I approached the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth. There's no indication that this girl is a virgin. There's no indication anywhere else in Scripture that any other virgin gave birth to a son. Um, And so we have to understand that it, it comes through Matthew. The other reason is, if you go back to our study of how to study the Bible... Remember one of the one of the rules of interpretation of how to interpret a text 
Now, in order to understand the right meaning, it was a text only has one meaning. A text only has one meaning. So either it means that it's either it's it means that it's referring to chapter eight verses three and four, or it means that it's referring to Christ. Matthew says it's referring to Christ. So the danger in taking multiple meanings in a text is that the text becomes loose. It becomes like jelly. Okay, you can make it mean whatever you want it to mean. But just like when you and I talk. You and I only have one meaning with what we have to say. Now, we can use words that, that have multiple meanings. Um, like we could use the word break. I need a break. Okay, are we talking about breaking a stick there? Okay, that is a legitimate meaning for the word break, but not in this context. I need a break has to do with a, a, uh, a siesta, a a nap, a, uh, a vacation, and so if we if we try to if we don't understand this very critical um, point in interpretation, then we can come up with multiple meanings in the text. And what's going to happen is we try to force other texts to to fit into what our understanding is, and then we uh, we make it much more difficult. And I think. I think we make a lot of our interpretations invalid if we do that. Bill? Well, the way I understand uh, Scripture is that here, in this case, the Lord Jesus would be born many, many years after Isaiah, 700 some years mm-hmm. after far prophecy, but in order for the people to believe, He gives them a very near prophecy because any prophet that prophesied and it didn't come true sooner or false prophet, they stoned them to death. And I would argue, and I would, I would agree with the statement that that I, I, the, the prophets were validated based on whether or not their prophecies came true. So if a prophet, if a prophet only gave far prophecies. Okay, we can never validate it because they're talking about centuries and centuries beyond. So we can never validate. We can never either uh, accept him as a good prophet or kill him as a bad prophet. I understand that. But I would say that Isaiah has plenty of other near prophecies that were only meant to be near. That's how I would argue. Well, you may be right, but that, that's just the way I see it. It seems like that every time he gives a far off one, he gives a near one too. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 uh, like I said, good people disagree on this. So I mean, uh, this is not something I would be burned at the stake for. But I would I would go back to this point of interpretation that a text only has one meaning. Now he doesn't necessarily have to know all the implications of what he said. He doesn't know that his name was actually Jesus, and that he would be born. You know, maybe even he he might not know that he was born in Bethlehem and all those sorts of things. But he does know that he's talking about a future redeemer that's coming through a virgin. That's what I would I would say. So that was his one meaning of the text. Now we see it completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and I would I would suggest that there there is no near fulfillment. No, no, no. I, I guess I agree with you 
about that, what you were saying about the other people's uh, yeah. agreement. Right. And what I'm saying is only one fulfillment as far as Christ and the virgin birth. Right. But in order for them to believe, Isaiah was God's man. He predicted other things. That were okay. Happening. Yeah. Yep. You're not suggesting that he I predicted another virgin. Another virgin. Okay. Okay. All right. I understand now. No, other things, and I I would agree with that statement. Yep, Trish. Well, the I I I think seven fourteen has to only be referring to Christ. So you're talking about fifteen the destruction of the cities, which is in fifteen and sixteen, he'll eat curds and honeys before the boy will know enough to refuse good and evil. Right. Um I would I would think that that's one time at first glance. It happened, and then Christ came seven hundred. But then the fact that the, I think when you read the first one about Christ, yeah, you get the idea that the destruction of those is happening then, but it's not. That it only happened one time. It was happening in Isaiah's time. But it, it, it makes it's because it's with that verse, it feels like it happens at Christ's time. Oh, oh, I got you. Okay, yeah, I, I got you. I understand what you're saying. So you're saying. When, when it get all the way to the point of Christ, now there's going to be destruction of the two cities. But yeah, I would say no that those that destruction happens way back, right. way back here, and then Christ's birth follows that. But it's so far. Yeah. So so they could have been at that time people during that day looking at at Isaiah's son being born and thinking, huh, you know, I wonder if this is it. But but then they would have to know whether or not she was a virgin and she gave birth to a son. And if they asked Isaiah, I would think he'd have to say, no, she wasn't a virgin. Oh, oh, I got you. Yep. They had already been, right. They had already been desolated and right. Yep. So I would say it's a one-time thing. Yep. So, anyway, um thought... um I thought that was a good way to help illustrate some of the points that we had looked at before with regard to um, how to interpret Scripture. We need to move. So, chapters 13 through 35 are a long discourse on the day of the Lord. And if you were here for the Minor Prophet series on Sunday evening, you know the day of the Lord is referring to a time of both judgment 
and blessing that will come at the end of time. Okay, the, the judgment obviously is going to be during the tribulation and the battle of Armageddon. And the blessing is the millennium and the kingdom to follow. Um, so we're, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time that. We're, we're going to bring that back up when we look at the prophets again in, in our Old Testament survey. But turn to chapter 24, verse 1. Chapter 24, verse 1. Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surfaces, and scatters its inhabitants. Okay, this is kind of a reversal of what happened in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and, and it had no substance really. Then look at verse 3. It's, it's almost like God goes back to that point, not completely, but you understand it's. There's destruction happening here. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled for the Lord has spoken this word. And then God fills the earth. Uh, um, well, He filled it in the creation account, but now He's emptying it. Look at verse 4. The earth mourns and withers. The world fades and withers. The exalted of the people, the earth fade away. So, I think the the part of the point here that... that um, Isaiah is making is that God is undoing the creation work that He had done. And, and notice why in verse 5. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. The reason that God is bringing judgment on the earth is the reason He always has. The flood, um, the, the exile, the, the, um, the future tribulation... It's because of sin. Sin really is calling for God's justice upon the earth. Chapters 36 through 39 are an interlude in the middle of the book. And um, the plot is simply this. Assyria has just conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and now Judah is next on the list. God delivers His people and brings down Assyria who's really arrogant group of people. And notice why He saves His people in 37, chapter 37, verse 35. Notice why God saves His people, that is Judah, 37, verse 35. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant's David, for my servant David's sake. See, God is persistent and very concerned about maintaining this seed that He had promised that would come through David. He's maintaining His own glory. I'm doing it for my sake and I'm also doing it for my servant David's sake. And um, then Babylon comes to the gates of Jerusalem and, and uh, unfortunately Jerusalem is not able to get out in time. And so notice uh, chapter 39... Verses 5-7, through seven, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers has laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away and they will become officials in the place of the king of Babylon. And uh, 
so what's happening here is that the line of David is, is narrowly escaping the schemes of the devil. And um, it's really a result of their own sin that leads them into captivity. And yet God spares them despite their sin because of the, His own sake and because of the sake of His servant David. Well, in the rest of the book, we have this courtroom setting that I talked about. And God is calling His people to testify to the nations that He alone is God. And unfortunately, they fail and they've they've actually followed this other these other false gods and actually tried to tried to pursue false gods and show that God wasn't the only God and so God's going to turn to his star witness in chapter 40 verse 1 comfort comfort uh, o comfort my people says your god speak kindly to jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended that her iniquity has been removed that she has received of the lord's hand double for all her sins. These are words of God's coming salvation. He does talk about their sin in verse 2, but notice the first part of verse 1. Comfort, comfort, oh comfort my people. And uh, so the, for the rest of the book, he talks about how he's going to preserve this line. And this section is full of wonderful uh, poetry about God's sovereignty, His uh, His majesty, and His salvation that He alone is holy. And and uh, if you read this section, you will be struck by how great God is. Look at chapter um, 49, verse 5. And now says the Lord whom who formed me from the womb to be His servant to bring Jacob back to Him so that Israel might be gathered to Him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Here, this servant, capital S, is said not only to bring the preserved ones back to Israel, but also to reach out and call the Gentiles, the nations, Okay, the, the, the people who are known as pagans. This servant was going to bring great blessing on all people. And that really goes back to the promise that God gave to Abraham. That through your seed, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Notice how he does this in chapter 53. It's in an unexpected way. Chapter 53, verse 3. He was despised. That is the servant and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. The problem with us, according to verse 5, is our own transgressions. Our own iniquities. It's our sins that have caused there to be a separation between us and God. 
sin is our problem. So we, we need this servant to come. And, and if he's going to come and restore our relationship with God, then he's going to have to deal with this sin that has fixed a gulf between us and God. We can't get across that gulf. And so what God's going to do is He's actually going to pierce him. He's going to crush him. And um, But that that's not how it ends. No, notice verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. What God is saying here is that God's not just going to crush this servant. He's actually going to exalt him. That the very act of, of Christ being crushed would actually be his greatest victory. That he would be exalted, that he would not stay dead, and um, and he would uh, raise to great heights of authority in heaven and on earth. And the rest of the book is really full of celebration of this salvation. And um, And I would encourage you to read through that when you get a chance, perhaps in your normal Bible reading or or just take some time. If you want to see God for who He is, Isaiah is a great book to see Him in that light. Alright, any uh, questions or thoughts before we go? Okay. Next week we'll look at... Um, well, we're not looking at Isaiah. Um, I'm not sure where we're looking next week, so we'll have to find out when we get there. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for this uh, study as we could uh, had a glimpse, really, of Your glory as Isaiah portrayed it for us. And uh, what's amazing is to see how uh, great You are compared to the idols, that there is no God like You. No one can compare to Your glory, to Your greatness, Your holiness. We pray that You'd help us to see You as You are and see You as clearly as we can and in doing so that we would recognize our own sin, our own worthlessness before You and definitely our need of a Savior, someone to come and take our place, to take care of our sin problem. Thank You for our Savior. pray that You'd help us to exalt Him in the service to follow. In Jesus' name, 